Welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and today I'm joined here again by the lovely Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole is going to be telling us all about the interesting case of Ted Kaczynski, who is also known more commonly as the Unabomber, and Journey will be educating us on the science of forensic linguistics uh, and how that played an absolutely instrumental role in catching the Unabomber. Um, I also would like to note just before we start that we do have a listener's discretion advised, um, as there are detailed descriptions of bombings. Um, so without further ado, I cannot wait to hear about this. I've done a little bit of research in the past on Ted Kaczynski, but I always look forward to hearing more. So Nicole, would you like to get us started? Of course. I'm super excited for this because aside from watching the Netflix TV documentary, I didn't really know anything about Ted Kaczynski. Um, So hopefully I can kind of delve into some of his life and motives. And there's a lot of information online, actually, which is kind of nice. But to get started, Theodore John Kaczynski, also known as Ted, he was born to a working class family on May 22nd, 1942 in Evergreen Park, which is a village in Illinois, USA. He was one of two brothers, so he does have a younger brother named David. And throughout school, Kaczynski was kind of considered a loner by other people that went to school with him. Um, But despite this, he was extremely intelligent. That was something everyone also would say about him. So he had scored uh, 167 on an IQ test in the fifth grade. Um, So this bumped him up to the sixth grade. So he had skipped a grade there. And throughout later on in his um, schooling, the school, I think it was his high school, recommended that he skip his junior year as well because of his intelligence. His band teacher, who kind of became uh, Kaczynski's Fred, friend, excuse me, he had pleaded to Ted's father not to allow this. Um, but his family actually used Ted's intellect as kind of a status symbol for the whole family. So they used it. They said that it made them look good, all of this stuff. And, um, it was one of the few things that did look good for that family. Um, so he didn't listen to these pleas. So Kaczynski skipped the 11th grade. And so thus he was two years younger than all of his classmates. And this kind of reinforced this outcast like characteristic of him like he just didn't have very many friends he was that small kid shorter than everyone smaller than everyone um but while he was in school he was part of the band so he did make some friends through that and he played the trombone um which i thought was kind of interesting and he also did partake in other extracurriculars but at the age of 16 kaczynski was accepted to harvard on a full-ride scholarship for mathematics. Um, While he was there, though, he wasn't very social. Again, this caused him to not make a lot of friends. I could imagine um, being 16 at Harvard, you're quite younger than most of the other people starting there. Um, So that kind of was also a big part in who he was, who he became to be. 
Um, during his freshman year at Harvard, he took up swimming, wrestling, he played some pickup basketball, and he also joined the chess, biology, German, and math clubs. Um, apparently, there was a source that said all freshmen that went to Harvard had to pick up a sport. Like, I don't know if it was something like private schools, how you have to do like a sport and an art and something like that. Um, yeah. So those were That makes sports. sense, though. Yeah. like... They're all just super smart, and none of them are going to move their body if they're not absolutely forced <laughs> to. <laughs> so yeah. I feel like this is just their way of making sure they stay like physically fit and active. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was during this time at Harvard, from the fall of 1959 to the spring of 1962, that Kaczynski participated in a study that was led by psychologist Henry Murray. And it's now been seen as an ethically inexcusable study. Um, so this controversial study had 22 undergraduate students. All of their names have been, like, no one knows who they are except Kaczynski since he's openly talked about it. Um, these undergraduate students were made to write about their personal philosophies and beliefs, but then they'd be hooked up to an electrodes, which I assume would be an EEG machine. Um, they didn't specify, though. And then there are psychological responses to being subjected to hours of insults and personal attacks would be measured. So basically, the essays that each of the participants wrote were used against them and as like the basis of all of these verbal attacks. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. And it's believed that he participated in this experiment for about 200 hours over the span of three years. And that his mental and emotional well-being suffered, which doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, that, that sounds, sounds awful. Yeah, I'm not yeah. surprised his mental health suffered either. Oh my god. <laughs> right? And so in a personal correspondence between an individual named Alston Chase, he was an author with degrees from Harvard, Oxford, and Princeton, um, between a conversation between him and Kaczynski. Kaczynski had noted that the Henry A. Murray Research Center of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, which is where the experiment happened, they refused to share information regarding the analysis of the study that he was a part of. Um, so this made him think that they had something to hide. However, though, raw data was released to his attorneys, but apparently the center had told the psychologists that were involved in the study to not speak with any of Kaczynski's defense team about this experiment, which is a bit sketchy. And um, I just have I a guess, question. Yeah. Do you think that they didn't want people from the study to talk to his defense team because he could have pled insanity? Because of how, like, horrible his mental health and, like, well-being was as a result of that study? I don't think so, because it does come up. Like, he actually, his defense tried getting him to plead insanity, but he was like, no, I'm not insane. I'm not going to do that. So I think he was very aware that, like, yeah, I did screw him up, but it couldn't be used as evidence, if that makes okay. sense. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, I think I think there was just a lot of sketchy stuff going on at that research center that that was why they kind of wanted to keep hush hush about it. I'm yeah. not 100% sure, though. That's kind of just my speculation. Okay. Um, yeah, but apparently his experiment, like Murray's experiment, intended to measure how people react under stress. Um, so it was a very interesting way of going about this because there's many ways you can induce stress on someone 
without verbally abusing them for hours straight. Um, but yeah, so this individual, Alston Chase, he does write a long but informative piece in The Atlantic. Um, I've included it in our source list, but he basically just goes on to say that his Kaczynski's time at Harvard basically shaped him into who he was as the unit bomber. Like if he didn't experience what he did at Harvard, like maybe he wouldn't have ended up doing the horrific things that he did. Um, and it just has some info on his life and all of that. There's not a lot of time to kind of go over that in this episode, um, but I do recommend checking that out. Um, but after this, in 1962, Kaczynski graduated from Harvard with a bachelor's degree in mathematics, and then he went on to pursue his master's in 1964 and then a doctorate in 1967, both from the University of Michigan and both in mathematics. So he was very smart. Because if you go and pursue mathematics for a bachelor, a master's, and a doctorate, you've got to be quite smart and enjoy math. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, so after receiving his PhD, he was hired at the University of California at Berkeley to teach undergraduate geometry and calculus. And he'd become the youngest assistant professor in the history of that university, which was kind of interesting. Um, but while at Berkeley, still, Ted wasn't very social, and his dislike and contempt towards technology and the trappings of modern world, of the modern world, sorry, continued to develop while he was there. Um, after two years of teaching, he resigned without any explanation for some reason. Some sources say afterwards he drifted between cities for two years, kind of living here and there. And then others have also said that he lived with his parents in Illinois for those two years. Um, but regardless, he didn't really do much during that time. After these two years um, living wherever he was, either in Illinois or all over the place, he and his brother David purchased a plot of land in Montana and they built a 10 by 12 cabin together. Um, the size of this cabin does vary, I will say, from sources, but it's either 10 by 12 or 10 by 14. Um, so small, regardless of the size. Um, once built, he moved into the cabin in 1971. It had no heat, no electricity, and no running water. So he spent most of his time reading books from the local library and drafting versions of what would later become the Unabomber's Manifesto. So he wanted to learn to live off the land and become self-sufficient, which was going well for him, I would will say, because um, he spent over five years, like seven or nine years, just in the cabin before he kind of started doing things. Um, but over the years, the land around him increasingly became more developed with industrial growth. So he saw many of his favorite spots in nature being bulldozed, being paved over, so he took it upon himself to begin vandalizing construction sites in an attempt to sabotage the real estate development that was help happening in the area around his cabin. That is exactly how you should deal with that. Just yeah. That, vandalize. Yeah, exactly. Um, these acts were greatly influenced by the writings of French Christian anarchist philosopher Jacques Ellul. Ellul? I don't know how to pronounce it. Something like that. Um, I don't know who he is, but apparently... Um, he had a lot of influence over Kaczynski, and so I, he knew that... Do you know who he is? Yeah, I talk about him later on. Oh, no way! Okay. Yeah, actually. <laughs> Look at that. 
Um, so he knew that typical activism wasn't going to be enough for people to understand him or to understand his threats that he had. Um, so he argued that, quote, they must be forced out of their comfortable lives and into action, end quote. And so Kaczynski came to the conclusion that, quote, the only way to stop the progression of technology and industrialization was by violent rebellion against the system, end quote. So in 1978, after that, Kaczynski moved to the Chicago area to work with his brother at his factory. And this was when he delivered his first bomb. So at his cabin during these seven years, um, he taught himself how to build explosives out of scrap metal and wood that would be untraceable. So no power tools were ever used. It was all done by hand. And any tool that he would need that he didn't have he would just make those by hand as well. Um, and then metal scraps would be melted on his wood stove, uh, which would be made into casts. And then anything he would need to buy from a store, he bought far from his cabin while disguised because he didn't want to leave any trace at all. Um so the first bomb that Kaczynski planted was a package bomb that he left in a parking lot of the University of Illinois Chicago Circle Campus in the parking lot outside of engineering professor Buckley Christ's office. So the return address was labeled to this professor. So the package was returned to his office. But when the professor saw it, he was like, I have never seen this package. I never mailed this package. I don't know why my name's on the return address. So he alerted security. Um, and sources differ whether it was the security guard or a police officer. But one of them had opened the package, which had detonated the explosive. And thankfully, he only sustained injuries to his hand out of all of the horrific things that could have happened to him. And in and around this time, Kaczynski was fired from his job working with his father and brother. Um, he had insulted a female supervisor who apparently he had briefly had a romantic relationship with. So this caused him to move back to his cabin and gave him a lot more time to continue to work on the bombs. And his main targets were, uh, quote, scientific universities, airlines, and businesses for the role in the over-industrialization of society and destruction of nature, end quote. That it's a lot of people, a lot of people to target, I will say. Yeah. Um, so he would either deliver the bombs by hand himself or he would mail them using a postal service. So in May of 1979, another bomb went off, injuring a graduate student at Northwestern University. And this bomb was placed in a room used by graduate students. So I assume the intention was to inflict as much damage to these students. And in November of the same year, the FBI finally became aware of his case when he had placed a bomb in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444. It was flying from Chicago to Washington. Thankfully, the attack was unsuccessful. The plane had been filled with a green smoke, which let them land the plan safe, land the plane safely, sorry. Um, and it turns out that Kaczynski had used the wrong powder for this. So obviously he was trying to use a explosive, like kind of like a gunpowder, but not a gunpowder, whatever's in fireworks. Um, but he used a different powder found in fireworks that created that green smoke. So this then 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, how did he get the bomb on the plane? Do you I have no that? idea. No, okay. it doesn't. I didn't find it. I'm not sure how it would work if, like, say so they were going to Chicago to Washington. Say, like, the U.S. Post had stuff in Chicago going to Washington. If they also throw that onto planes, onto commercial planes, like, I don't know if that happens. That's the only thing yeah. I can really think of. Um. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So, I don't know, I will say. <laughs> okay. Um, I assume it was through a postal service. Yeah, that makes I, the most sense. The connection between commercial airline, though, and that, um, I cannot say. Um, but yeah, so that then fell under the Bureau's jurisdiction, and a task force was created that was led by the FBI. But it also included the ATF and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. And they investigated the Unibomb case. And so this stood for University and Airline Bombing Targets. There were over 150 full-time investigators, analysts, and other like detectives who were working on this task force. And they found it a very difficult case because Kaczynski, Kaczynski excuse me, was very meticulous in making sure that no traceable evidence would be left behind. So he put, like, false evidence into the bombs as a countermeasure. He used basic basic scraps that gave no meaningful information whatsoever about where it came from, where, like, anything about the bomber. And so the materials were basically just considered scraps and that you could be found, that could be found anywhere. So it really didn't give them anything. And... Between 1980 and 1985, seven bombs were distributed by Kaczynski, injuring multiple people. And in December of 1985, he took his first life when he sent a computer store owner, John Hauser, a bomb which had a makeshift which had makeshift shrapnel in it. Um, I don't. I never found out or read anywhere if his motive was to kill people or if it was just to injure. Because out of all of his bombs, he's only killed three people, which still is a lot more than you would hope for. Um, but mo- the majority slash almost all of them were just injured. Um, but for some reason, between 1986 and 1993, he took a break. I'm not 100% sure why. I couldn't really find anything on it. Um, but only one device had been sent in that time frame. And it was this device in 1987 where they uh, got their first eyewitness of the Unabomber. So a composite sketch was created. He described the suspect as a man in a hooded sweatshirt with sunglasses, which was widely circulated. And I have a feeling most people have seen this photo. It's like he's got the aviator sunglasses on, the hood around his head. Um, I'll post it on our website, too, just to for those to take a peek at. Or if you even just Googled Ted Kaczynski um, sketch, I guess. I have a question about the sketch. Sorry. Yes. Um, That's okay. I just forgot it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like sent it to one of Bryce's buddies because he was wondering who we were talking about this week. And I was yeah. like, yeah, um, I thought I read somewhere that he kind of made like the aviator look like famous or maybe it was the maybe it was the bomber jacket 
I think it was something. the glasses it was because the glasses. that was like I. Sorry, I know they're called like aviators. They're not called unibombers, but like I thought yeah. he was kind of the like, one person who kind of like started that. Oh, I don't know. I know they're used like pilots. They're used with pilots. Um, I don't know if he caused like um sales to skyrocket after <laughs> and like popularize them people have morbid sense of like interest in that kind of stuff so it wouldn't surprise me yeah. um but they did find at his cabin like eight pairs of these aviator sunglasses kind of thing i'll post a picture yeah um so it kind of became his like trademark look i would say yeah um I don't personally know. I didn't see anything if there is a correlation between um, the popularization of those glasses after that. Okay. Um, but it's definitely possible. Yeah, I have no idea where that heard that. I have no idea if he's even the right person. But I was like, yeah, that sounds right. And I said it with complete confidence. And they were like, <laughs> no, you are so wrong. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's probably true. As long as you say it with confidence, it's fine. Oh, Yeah. Um, so in 1993, he did resume with his bombings. He took a second life later that year. And this was Thomas Moser or Mosser. He was an executive at a firm that represented Exxon Valdez. And I guess I've never heard of the company before, but they apparently had a disastrous oil spill in 1989. Um, so Kaczynski was not happy about this. In 1994, oh, I said the exact same thing. He was killed by a package bomb um, sent to his house in New Jersey. Sorry, I had a whole other, like, slide, not a slide, but a note on the other person he killed, but it was the same person. Anyways, his final bomb com- uh, claimed his third victim, which who was uh, Gilbert Brent Murray in 1995. And he worked for the California Association and he lobbied on behalf of the logging industry. So I can see how Kaczynski would not have been a fan of that. Um, so he had sent a total of 16 bombs, killing three people and injuring 23 But it was after this 1995 bombing that a huge break in the case came. So the New York Times were sent a letter by someone claiming to be the Unabomber, which was the name that the media had given him because of the Unabomb task force. So he had told them that he would end his bombings if they published his 35,000 word anti-technology manifesto, which was called Industrial Society and Its Future. But he also threatened that he would continue if they didn't publish his essay. So in his manifesto, he kind of discusses how the Industrial Revolution has separated humans from their natural environment, from what they once came from. And this came with a lot of severe consequences to human life. So he had laid out a solution saying that people needed to go against this Industrial Revolution, returning to a more primitive lifestyle And that the essay explained that his apparent motives and views, um, or they, sorry, they explained his apparent motives and views of the ills of modern society. So there's a lot of debate as to whether to publish the essay. Some thought that they'd be like giving into terrorists and they were worried about what the repercussions would be like. And, you know, in the future, if a situation like this happened again, how 
a possible terrorist could use that against them. And they also didn't want to risk boosting the ego, sorry, the bomber's ego by providing him with a national stage. Um, so ultimately, FBI Director Louis, Louis, I will say, Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno, they agreed to publish the essay in hopes that someone would be able to identify the author. So it was published. It appeared as an eight-page supplement in the Washington Post on September 19th, 1995, 17 years after he delivered his first bomb. So they he had contacted New York Times, but I, I don't know if there's like an association between the two companies, if they work together, but they got the help of um, Washington Post, and then they were the ones that agreed to um, publish his manifesto. So the lead investigator of the task force, Terry Turchi, he knew that there was no no question that the author believed in what he was writing like wholeheartedly, believing that there was a probability that he had held these beliefs for most of his life, if not his entire life, and this could help provide evidence as to who he may be as a person and ultimately help identify him. I mean, that makes a lot of sense given like he took the time to write 35,000 words on the topic. Like he must be passionate to it to some extent. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And he also went on to say that like, so no two people write alike is something that um, Turchi remembered a creative writing teacher saying to him in school. And so this proved to be extremely helpful in the case because he took that, what he remembered of her saying that with the concept of, he is very passionate about this topic. I feel like not many people are this passionate and expressive about this topic. Something's going to like, it's going to narrow down the pool a whole lot. Um, so each of the words, basically every word in that manifesto uh, were being analyzed by the FBI and his writing actually gave away a lot more information about who he was as a person than I assume Kaczynski was hoping for or even realized would happen. Um, So they had some psychologists and analysts on it, and they basically learned about the ideas he held, of course, uh, any of the topics that he studied, books that were meaningful to him, like anything he kind of cited could give them insight into it. And this was all information that revealed aspects about his education, his age, and personality, which could be used to create a profile for him. Um, David Kaczynski, Ted's younger brother, he had seen the manifesto in the Washington Post and recognized elements of the author's writing because it seemed or it read very similarly to his brother's work. And he did know, obviously, that the FBI were receiving thousands of tips So he hired a private investigator to basically create a case against Ted and like including any evidence that could be used to help prove that he is the guy or at least help the FBI kind of narrow their search. Um, And he brought this to or it was brought to authorities in February of 1996 Some sources say that a lawyer representing David contacted the FBI. Some say that he contacted them directly. Regardless, he got in touch with them, and this was a huge breaking point in the case. 
He described to them that his brother was quite troubled. He grew up in Chicago, taught at the University of California at Berkeley, which is where two of the bombs had been placed. He lived um, for a time in Salt Lake City before settling down in their cabin. And David gave the FBI sample letters and documents that were written by Ted. So this included a 23-page essay written by Ted in 1971. And this is where linguistic analysis determined that the author of those documents in the manifesto were almost certainly the same person. With it being forensics, you can't say 100% of a match, but it was quite close to that. And the agent who first read the 23-page essay, he immediately, or he, she, I'm not sure, immediately noticed writing similarities between the essay and the manifesto, um, along with kind of the other supplemental writings that was provided as well. So particular spelling of words and phrases were picked out, like the British spelling of analyze, so A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, and as well as the phrase, quote, sphere of human freedom, end quote, jumped out to Turchi and other analysts. And this same line was found in the manifesto when he says, quote, we are going to argue that industrial technological society cannot be reformed in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrowing the sphere of human freedom, end quote. So it's definitely not a common thing people will say. I don't think I've ever said sphere of human freedom in my life. I don't know about you guys, um, but it did help them kind of pinpoint and narrow down. Uh, all of this evidence, though, some investigators still didn't believe that Ted and the Unabomber were the same person. But as forensic linguistic analysis continued, there was a small group of investigators who adamantly believed that Ted Kaczynski was the Unabomber and the same man who wrote the Uni- manifesto. So for two months, they were debating whether or not Kaczynski was their guy, and somehow his identity was leaked to the press. I don't know how um, or why, but this caused the team to try and get a search warrant before the story broke because they didn't want it to make headlines to alert Kaczynski and then either him running or something disastrous happening from that. So they took the information that they had gained kind of just throughout the bombings of Ted's life that was provided by David, as well as the linguistic evidence. And it was this linguistic evidence that was the basis for a search warrant that they were able to obtain. So on April 3rd, 1996, agents executed their search warrant, searching his cabin and arresting him. Upon searching his cabin, they found various materials to make bombs. 40,000 handwritten journal pages incriminating himself and describing the attacks, handwritten drafts of the manifesto, along with a live, fully assembled bomb that was ready to be mailed out. So this was obviously enough evidence to uh, say he did it, and he was indicted by a federal grand jury on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, in addition to three counts of murder. His lawyers tried to convince him to plead insanity, like I had mentioned earlier, but he wouldn't do it. He just did not want to be seen as crazy, I guess, and he knew he wasn't, well, he told himself he wasn't crazy. Um, But anyways, he pled guilty and he was sentenced to eight life terms without parole to be served at a supermax facility in Florence, Colorado. 
So with him pleading guilty took the death penalty off the table from my understanding. And I'm not sure at what point, if it was through the investigation or through the trial, uh, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. But Kaczynski is very adamant that he is not crazy and he is not mentally ill. But um, I assume this is what lawyers were wanting him to use as the basis of their insanity defense. I'm not 100% sure, though, but that just makes the most sense to me. And he said that he wanted to bring about a revolution against the industrial system. So at ADX Florence, this is the Supermax prison, Kaczynski spent 22 hours or more a day in a 12 by 7 cell that had running water, electricity, a shower, toilet, desk and a stool, and a 13-inch TV, which Kaczynski apparently never used. So I feel like it's a little of an upgrade for him. Like, they basically just gave him a great life (laughs) in that sense. Um, He loved his solitude, so the 22 hours was not a huge deal for him. He got three meals a day that he apparently got to choose from a menu um, what he wanted. He got freshly laundered bedding and clothes. Uh, I think it was like three times a week he got fresh clothes or once every three weeks, something like that. Um, He said he was very comfortable there. It didn't really hate his time there. (laughs) Uh, So don't know how I feel about that, but whatever, there's that. Um, He refused to use the internet, though, and knows only what he's read in books, newspapers, or letters. But it's interesting, I found that in 2010, a professor and some of her students wrote to Kaczynski as part of a critical thinking course. And, excuse me, in this course, they basically asked public figures to expand on their ideas. So they had sent out um, a whole bunch of letters to, like, Obama. Eminem was one of them. Just well-known people and so one of the students had actually suggested like hey why don't we talk to Kaczynski and get his views about how the expanding use of the internet had affected personal freedom and like his opinion on that so they did they didn't expect much of it they hadn't gotten responses from any of the other figures so they were extremely shocked to have received a response from Kaczynski almost immediately he had sent them a 12-page handwritten letter And it basically outlined that, like, his views hadn't really drastically changed in those 15 years. But in his letter, he said that the internet has increased, quote, the individual's freedom of expression in the sense that it greatly enhances his or her ability to send and receive ideas and information. So I think he was starting to grow on the idea in the sense of an intellectual information out there sort of realm. Like he had more that he could learn from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and through an exchange over three months with the professor and students and him, they discussed like Facebook, YouTube, both he obviously had never heard of before. Um, and they held intellectual arguments about basically the pros and cons of the internet and, he actually slowly started to come around to embrace some of the aspects of the 21st century kind of communication, but only in the sense that 
benefit him. So he he had so many correspondence and pen pals while he was in jail. Um, so he wanted to learn more about these people who had written to him or people he hadn't heard from in a while. So he would ask correspondents to look them up on Facebook and then relay the information back to him. And he surprisingly would send people who were looking to buy him books to Amazon. And he used the platform to sell his book that consisted of a collection of his writings. Oh my goodness, as if he supports Jeff Bezos. Right? (laughs) As Uh, if. (laughs) And I read something saying about how um a fan i don't know if i don't know if i'd call him a fan but a pen pal of his had sent him a screenshot of the page with his reviews of his book and kaczynski was like what the heck is this like i don't know what any of this means he didn't know what the stars meant what the comments meant so he he kept that copy and basically created and drew out a replica of the reviews and was like can you explain what this means? And so he like <laughs> wanted to learn more about how <laughs> Amazon reviews worked. So he kept the review. It's kept in his cell, I guess, but I just kind of can't help but laugh at that. Oh my goodness. It's kind of like, he's obviously not great, but it's kind of cool that he's still like willing to learn and is still curious, even though he's been so anti-technology for so long that now he's like, okay, no, they're, there is some good. There's lots yeah. of bad, but there is some good. Like, this is still kind of useful. Like, I still need to know about it in order to yeah. have an opinion on it. Yeah. And so, like, going off that, he read an article in The Atlantic about how uh, the WikiLeaks founder, as well as a conservative activist, were using the internet to share, like, previously concealed information with the public. And so this actually helped kind of change his views so his views started to waver after reading about this because he thought that this use of the internet could be considered like used in an like it's being used in an influential way in his opinion to uncover all of this hidden information um but he was still torn on the fact he wasn't quite sure how he felt but five years after the professor and her students had corresponded with Kaczynski, because like the, the class ended, they didn't keep up in touch with him. Um, she received an email from an anonymous woman, basically said, uh, Ted wanted you to see this. Click the link. It'll expire in 24 hours. And she was like, who the hell? Like, Ted, what the frig? And she was like, oh, like, okay, Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. So she clicked the link. And it was a draft of his second book that he was writing. But it was a neatly typed document with his handwritten notes in the margins that she could recognize from when he had handwritten um, letters to her. So obviously, I take this as him using a computer and technology to now write his manifesto on anti-technology, which I thought was a bit ironic, but he is coming around to it, apparently. Oh my Um, goodness. Yeah. So it was an updated copy of his 1995 manifesto. It had, though, like the updated tidbits included current references to computers and the internet. Um, And in the preface or, yeah, preface, I always read it as preface and that's definitely not it. Um, I do the same thing. (laughs) 
he acknowledged that he needed to rely on sources of what he called doubtful reliability, as in media and the internet and all of this, while writing his book, because he had such a limited access to the outside world in his cell. Um, And so subtle changes could actually be seen in Kaczynski's philosophy. And one of them that they mentioned was actually that he did not mention violence at all, apparently, in this updated copy. And there's some speculation that it's unclear whether this was made because he couldn't publish it while he was in jail. Like, it would have been flagged by guards and they couldn't do whatever with it. It would have been blocked. Um, Or if it was actually just a change of heart kind of thing. I doubt it, but you never know. It's never really been disclosed what his true intentions were. Um, But yeah, while he was in prison, he published two books. So the Technological Slavery, the Collective Writings of Theodore J. Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, as well as Anti-Tech Revolution, Why and How. And this would be like the second one is the updated copy of his manifesto. And this is what he had sent to the professor because he I guess he quite enjoyed the company, like the snail mail company of the professor and the students. Um, So he felt very inclined to share this with her. But after spending uh, the last two decades in the federal supermax prison, Ted was transferred to a federal prison medical facility in North Carolina in December of 2021. So just a few months ago. And the spokes, yeah, the spokesperson for the U S Bureau of prisons has declined to discuss any detail about Kaczynski's medical condition or why they transferred him at all. But I read that they have like oncology um, stuff and just medical technology that you wouldn't get in a normal prison um, for certain diseases. I don't know if he would refuse such technology, this advancement in like medicine science because of his whole anti-technology idea. Uh, I couldn't find anything about it. I assume he seems like quite a self-centered man. If it benefits him, he'll probably say yes to it. Um, And this is kind of irrelevant. I thought it was interesting. I wanted to throw it in. But at that same medical facility, Joe Exotic, the Tiger King, was transferred there (laughs) in November of 2021 following his cancer diagnosis. So they are both in the same facility. Oh my goodness. I want to be a fly (laughs) on the wall for one of their conversations. Oh my goodness. Right? That I think it would just be so physically painful to listen in <laughs> on a conversation between the two of them. Yep. Because he, like, in the letters that the professor and the students got, they basically said they, like, had to read his letters with a dictionary beside them because of just how intellectual his writing was. Um, oh, which could be probably... He... Sorry, Sorry, go ahead. Do you think he, like, genuinely understood all those words he was using and was actually using he was a very smart man or do you think he was using all of these complicated words to sound smarter than he really was yeah i personally i would say he did know those and was just talking like that because of all of the reading he's done 
over time. You just kind of build a vocab for that. Um, plus, it would be a lot harder to thesaurus.com the words because he didn't <laughs> use his technology. Like, I feel like it would be harder for him to find fancier sounding words in that sense. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I don't know. It could be a mix of both. No idea. Um, but yeah, it was a new, nearly two decade hunt for this un- for the Unabomber. Um, and it's kind of strange too, because if he had posted or asked for his manifesto to be published earlier, that he would have been caught much earlier because he, it took them two months to catch him after the manifesto was released, something like that. Or, um, no, because David came in in February and then he was arrested in April. So the manifesto was released just previously to that. Wow. So I just, yeah, it was a very long, long hunt for him. It's said to have been America's longest and costliest manhunt. And according to Kaczynski's personal journals, his motive was, quote, simply personal revenge, end quote. Mm-hmm. Um, so he hated certain kinds of people. So government officials, police, computer scientists. He also said the rowdy type of college students who left their beer cans in the Arboretum, according to Ted. So I don't. I, it makes sense, you know. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these were the people he kind of targeted. He. I think there's more to his motive than simply personal revenge, but yeah. Yeah. That is Theodore J. Kaczynski. That's crazy that it took them so long to catch him. And it's so scary because when individuals are that smart and they know what to work around in order to not get caught, it's absolutely terrifying because you know that they won't unless they reach out to you, which is what he did. And same with Ed Kemper too, right? Yeah. I think like, a piece of him was like getting bored. He was like, I, people aren't recognizing my work for me. Like yeah. I need to be recognized for being this inte- intellectual outstanding person. Yeah. Um, and he thought that like, he'd be memorable. Memorialized. Know, that word. That word. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, by posting or by publishing this uh, manifesto. So I don't know. He definitely, something happened and he was like, I'm bored. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. Like he, I think he, it's not that he wanted to get caught, but I think he was just bored of the chase and he was like, I'm too smart for them. And they're, people aren't going to know my name unless I give them a very easy hint. Yeah, exactly. And they don't seem to be understanding my message that technology is bad. So I need to write it out so that they understand like what I'm here for. Because even with his intelligence, I feel like he'd recognize that his writing is above a lot of other people's writing. Like, it would be very clear that an educated Western man, of whatever regard, wrote this, and that's just going to lead them closer to him. Like, mm-hmm. he had to have known that, at least in my opinion. Like, how could you not? Yeah, as far as I know, he never tried to, like, um, like hide his identity through his writing and, like, change it to make it seem like he wasn't the person who wrote it. 
Which yeah. I guess makes sense because he wasn't ashamed of his ideas. Yeah. But. Yeah. So I think we'll find out in the next upcoming year, few months, what is going on with him. Um, I don't know what his health conditions are like, but hopefully we'll have updates for our listeners because I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely keep our listeners updated. Like if we hear anything about the Unabomber, like for sure we'll... I don't know, maybe do an episode or even just a few posts um, when the time comes. We'll figure that out. Uh, but also, if anybody hears anything about it and hasn't seen us mention it, then send it over to us because we really we really want to stay updated on this. Um, yeah. But yeah, thank you so much, Nicole, for telling us all about Ted Kaczynski. Um, I thought I knew like a lot about him but there's a lot of stuff that you had mentioned that I'm like wow okay he was way smarter than I initially thought and like I didn't realize that his viewpoints were kind of changing a little bit in prison not that that makes him a good person all of a sudden it doesn't (laughs) but it's it's just really interesting to hear about how his life is still probably better in prison than it was before (laughs) yeah a hundred percent Yeah, so um, with the story of the Unabomber, uh, now we understand uh, his backstory. Journey, do you want to tell us about forensic linguistics and sort of like how they used forensic linguistics to decode his manifesto? Yeah, um, so I get to tell you guys about the science of forensic linguistics. I knew absolutely nothing about it before going into into this and starting this research. So it was kind of a learning process for me as well. Um, So linguistics is the scientific study of human activity, and it's focused on the structure of language and how it functions in contrasting settings. Um, Whereas forensic linguistics is the application of scientific knowledge to language in the context of criminal and civil law. So basically you're studying language in a law setting. Um, and I, before I started my research, I thought that forensic linguists were only tasked with like decoding letters and such, like in the Unabomber's case, uh, but they actually do quite a bit more and their process of like, quote unquote, decoding is actually incredible. I have not done justice to this science. Um, so if you guys are interested, definitely look into it. I have some really great sources posted, Um, forensic linguists are also interested in understanding the language of the written law. So understanding its complexities, its origin, as well as the language used in forensic procedures. So they would look at a contract or something similar and then determine if it will be too difficult for a jury to understand and then kind of simplify it in a way that can be understood by people who are not lawyers or possess a higher education, which is really nice. Um, And that being said, forensic linguists study the judicial process as a whole. So they look at the arrest, the interview, charges, trial, and sentencing. And then within that, they look at the language of the police when they're interviewing the suspects and witnesses and the use of language between lawyers and witnesses in cross-examination. I feel like we talked about something similar in one of our classes where like, it's very important the language you use on the stand to make sure that your words are not like confused, confusing or easily misunderstood or possibly have a second meaning or something. So a linguist would kind of like go through 
and pick out something that would be confusing and be like, hey, this is wrong. Like, this should be this word or this actually meant this instead of what he actually said, kind of. Um, so to kind of simplify, the goal of forensic linguistics is to create a careful and systemic analysis of language. Um, and this next part is actually really cool. So I have a little bit of history. So the term forensic linguistics was first used by Jan Svartvik in 1968 in the Evans Statements. Um, I was able to find the actual like essay that he had written about the Evans Statements. Um, so that was really interesting. So um, T.J. Evans, who was 25 at the time, he was charged with the murder of his wife and their 14-month-old daughter, and he was found guilty and hanged in 1950. Three years later, R.J. Christie, who lived in the same house, and the way they describe this house kind of made me think of an apartment building. So I think there was like a bottom floor that was a house and then a top floor that was also a house. I have a question. So would this kind of yeah. be like, you, you know, like in-law suites where it's basically another apartment underneath, but it's still one house? Does that make yes. sense? Yes. So my idea of an in-law suite is having just another house like on the ha- uh, property instead of like attached. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, so I think so. Um, there's just like an apartment upstairs, an apartment downstairs. So kind of like the house that I lived in in Halifax where there was two apartments is, yeah, my understanding. Um, yeah, so RJ Christie, who lived in their house, he confessed to killing Evans's wife, and he was hanged after he was found guilty for killing his own wife. And so new people moved into their house before uh, Christie was arrested, and they found three bodies in the kitchen alcove. They found Mrs. Christie's body under the floorboards in the front room, and then bones from two skeletons in the garden within the span of like a week. Um, That's an intense crime scene. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. So, yeah, this Christie guy, not a good fellow. And judging from like the statements and stuff he did, like influence Evans uh, quite a bit and gave him some ideas. I don't really know what's true or not. Um, but then in 1966, Evans was given a posthumous pardon in relation to the death of his daughter. So I wasn't able to find like how or why they decided to kind of pardon him from being accused of killing his daughter. Um, but they found they did like a public inquiry and they found that he most probably killed his wife, but he most likely did not kill his daughter. Um, but I have no evidence to support that. So that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder, like, obviously, this is completely speculation. But like, they're saying that he most probably killed his wife, but not his daughter. Like, do you think maybe his wife killed the daughter? And out of anger, he killed her? Um, so when I read this statement, he said that his wife got pregnant and wanted an abortion. And he said no. And so she took these like, pills or something or he killed her in order to like solve the problems but then I think he just like left his daughter in her cradle or something like he gave four statements to the police and they were each just a little bit different so I'm not really sure what's the truth 
And so that's what Svartvik was kind of looking for with doing this analysis of those. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what I thought. Like, I think he just kind of like neglected his daughter and then she died because they didn't also mention if Christy was convicted of killing his daughter either. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, not great fellows by the sounds of it. Um, and then so Svartvik analyzed the four confession statements, like I said, um, that Evans had given to the police as well as one given by Christy. And so it was really interesting to read his analysis because he was very aware of like the restrictions of his research and how like his sample size was really small and this was a new kind of research and there wasn't really much to compare it to because they had really nothing else, um, nothing, no other writings of Evans to compare to. And he also noted that, um, that Evans was like illiterate And so this statement was written down by a police officer. So how much did that affect what was actually being said? Like, was it actually word for word verbatim or was it um, the police officer added some things in there that contribute to the differences? So that was really interesting to see in 1960s research because that's something that we're still trying to do today. Yeah. 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 And then, like, in his preface, he says that there are two reasons why he chose to study this case and apply it to a discipline that had hardly been invented. And so the first reason was that it, quote, had, uh, it has provided the linguist with one of those rare opportunities of making a contribution that might be directly useful to society, end quote, which I think is so cool that he's like yeah i'm gonna contribute to society just by doing this research and i was like you're thinking like a scientist this is so cool yeah um yeah so that got me excited and then the second was that it highlighted quote our present inadequate knowledge of how language is used in various situations end quote so again like furthering our knowledge which i just think is so forward thinking for someone in the 1968 So he didn't really, like, have a firm conclusion on the case um, because, again, like, forensic linguistics is a fairly new field. He didn't have a big sample size. He just kind of threw out some ideas and was like, hey, this is something that could potentially be useful in the future to cases like this. Um, But, yeah, it was super interesting to look at. And we had a listener reach out to us, like, yesterday or the day before, who's, like, super interested in forensic linguistics. So, reach out again, and I will send you these statements, because they are very interesting to read, and I think you would really enjoy them. Um, so, that was, like, the first introduction of forensic linguistics into the science, into the scientific and forensic world. Um, and now I'm gonna, just going to expand a bit more on the uses of forensic linguistics. So, I have, like, seven examples of what a forensic linguistic linguist would be working on within a legal proceeding. Um, So the first thing, and this is the most common um, thing that they are tasked with, and a lot of the next six examples kind of work towards this first one. Um, And it is voice and author identification. And so the goal is to identify who the author of a certain text was, or who said a certain thing in a recording. Um, And to do this, they analyze the idiolect of the author and their vocabulary, collocations, pronunciations, spelling, and grammar in order to hopefully provide an identity. 
Um, and so your idiolect is just like the speech habits of a person. So how they pronounce a word, how they use it in a sentence or what they imagine that it means. And then like collocations are just words that often go together or are found together, like the term light sleeper or early riser. Um, so they'll look for things like that. And uh, Nicole had kind of mentioned this, that this was something that Ted was told was that every speaker or writer has their own distinct and individual version of the language they speak and write. So they will have like their idiolect will show itself through the distinctive and individualistic choices in text. So it'll become very obvious who wrote this versus who didn't. Um, and so the examiner will compare the evidentiary text to other texts written by the presumed author and then determine if the person can be excluded or identified. And so this is what happened again with Ted Kaczynski. And I kind of delve into that a little bit later on. Um, and then the second example would be forensic stylistics. Um, and so it is when written or spoken material are scientifically analyzed to determine meaning, speaker identification, and if there was any plagiarism. So it's basically just describing how they identify the author. Um, and it's also called stylometry, which I kind of like that word. Um, <laughs> so and the third thing is discourse analysis. And so with this, they analyze written, oral, and sign language and any other significant semiotic events. So this just means that they are analyzing the use of like emojis or signs or logos, etc. in conversation or in text, which I can imagine is becoming very prevalent nowadays where a lot of people are solely using emojis to communicate. And then the fourth thing we have is linguistic dialectology. Um, so this is the study of dialects in a methodological manner based on anthropological information. So this really stood out for me as an anthropologist um, because an example of it is that like a lot of people speak English, but they might have different dialects which indicate where they grew up. And so like in the UK, there are so many dialects that you can tell almost exactly where someone is from due to their accent and how they talk, which is absolutely fascinating. And one thing, like, for me, moving out to the East Coast, there were so many terms and, like, pronunciations of words that I was not familiar with. And then moving back to Alberta, I, like, brought that with me. And now they're foreign to the people who I'm around in Alberta, which is so cool. Um, and then the fifth thing is forensic phonetics. So a forensic phonetician make sure that there is an accurate transcription being made about what was said. Um, so like transcriptors are important because they can tell us about a speaker's social and regional backgrounds, and they're able to determine similarities between speakers of two or more separate recordings. Um, and they're able to tell behavioral states from voice and speech. Um, and I actually have a really good source. If anyone wants to read more about forensic phoneticians, it went just a bit too in-depth for this episode, so I didn't include much information about it. But um, yeah, if you're interested, it's in our source list. Um, and then the sixth kind of going along with that is forensic transcriptions. So again, fairly self-explanatory, um, but transcriptions can become evidence. So it's important that they are accurate and reliable and um, yeah, just 
reliable. So, and then the last thing is uh, variation, which forensic linguists need to be able to tell intra-author variations where one author's text differs um, versus inter-author variations where different authors' writing varies. So they need to be able to look at a source and be like, okay, this wasn't written by the same person because of these things, or this was written by the same person because of these things, but it's a different topic or whatever. So they used whatever. Um, excellent description journey. That's solid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so those are the kind of like things that they would be working on or looking at when studying um, linguistic evidence within a trial and so forensic linguists are often called to court to answer two questions. The first being, what does a given text say in quotations? And who is the author? I so they question. can Yes, Nicole. Sorry. So with the whole, um, like, what does a given text say? I, how difficult would this be, though? Because I find, at least for myself, like, reading messages and stuff through it's very hard to extrapolate like the intended meaning behind it or if there even was an intended meaning like how can they decide or show what the author's intentions were if like even the author didn't even know themselves at the time of writing that's um I feel like there would be certain things and like word choices and like uh, sentence structures that they can use to kind of pick out ideas that the author might not have realized. So if they okay. find that there's like a theme that's really prevalent in all of their writings, they're like, okay, this is something really important. And so, so would like, they create like multiple possible like meanings of what they were trying to say, or do they often always come to one conclusion? I do not know the answer to that. Okay. I would assume that they would do multiple because, like, it's forensics. This is a science. You can't just have one answer. Yeah. Okay. Like, I assume that they would have multiple so they can say, okay, it may have meant this. It may have meant this. This is our most likely one, but it could have also been this. And then, like, using the rest of the evidence to pick and choose what's the best. Yeah. Um, so, okay. I realize I have an answer to your question literally in my next bullet point, the one <laughs> before the one you just asked. So like in order to answer like what does a given text say, they draw on a knowledge of like phonetics, phonology, lexi, syntax, semantics, pragmatics, discourse, and text analysis. So basically what I just went through, they'll just like take a really in-depth look at this, be like, okay, this word means this, but it can also mean this. What was the actual meaning of that? Why did they choose okay. to phrase it this way? Um and so, yeah, like that being said, they're not concerned with deciphering words, but rather how they would be interpreted. And so they're like looking for the real motives of why they wrote or said something and their intentions with the text. Um, I have a source that I can add. Someone does a linguistic analysis of Kurt Cobain's suicide note. Oh. Um, so that would be a really good example of how you pick out what these meanings mean because yeah. the author mentioned that was this a suicide note was this something else did he actually kill himself there was a little bit of a conspiracy around that um and so he kind of went through and was like this is why we think this 
this is why we don't think this. So I will put that in our sources. I don't have it there yet. Um, but yeah, so any form of text that can be implicated in legal or criminal context will be analyzed by a forensic linguist. So that includes 911 calls, ransom demands, any kind of threat communication, suicide letters, death row statements, and social media statements. Um, and then some areas that are related to forensic linguistics are like document examination. Um, again, like fairly self-explanatory and kind of what we talk about with this episode and the last one with handwriting analysis. Um, software forensics, this one's kind of new. So this would be like applying the stylistic analysis to computer programming to identify any plagiarism within software programs and coding. Um, so this one goes way above my intellectual capacity, um, but it seems really interesting and I would kind of like to delve into it a little bit deeper and kind of like figure out how they can tell that. But also if you watch the movie Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, you'll see how this would apply to that because there's this whole thing of like, oh, they stole our code because this is still available in it, but they have to like prove it. So they would use software forensics to prove that this guy stole their code or whatever. Yeah. So I'm, well, I'm currently taking a programming class right now too. And like, we consistently learn that like there's multiple algorithms and multiple ways to do things. So each programmer has their like methodology behind how to execute certain functions. So you can still do things and get the same answer, but it's the way that the code's written and like the syntax and like how to make it look pretty and all of that. Like that's going to vary, which I think is really neat because it's not like reading a letter, it's reading code. So you're not getting like the motive behind anything, but you can still see those differences. Yeah, you can still individualize between pieces of code, which is actually incredible. Yeah that we're able to do that. Wow. Um, Yeah, that's so cool. Um, And so then I have like semiotics, which is like the study of meaning making. So they look at sign, sign processes, indication, designation, likeness, analogy, metaphor, symbolism, uh, signification, and communication. So they're kind of determining the meaning of certain things that cannot explicitly state it. So like emojis, signs, um, I had another example, but I forgot it. Um, Logos within text that they can look for. Um, And then plagiarism detection, again, self-explanatory and kind of plays along with author identification. And then they also participate in linguist and lawyer interactions. So linguists and legal professionals need to work together to understand each other's perspectives and make sure that the law is being represented in a way that the jury will understand in order to limit misunderstandings and miscarriages of justice. I kind of mentioned that at the beginning, but I feel like that is a very, very important use of forensic linguistics and one that we should maybe be doing a little bit more. (laughs) Um, And then we have like semantics. Yes. Sorry. It just popped into my mind. Um, So going on with this whole, like, misunderstandings and miscarriages, do you think um, they would provide instructions to expert witnesses on how to word their evidence? 
Like, is that what this is? Yeah, I feel like if they don't, they should. Okay. Because that would make the most sense. Yeah, Veronica was telling us about how, like, when she testifies, she has to make sure that it's digestible for those listening. Because not everyone has the knowledge that the experts have. Exactly. Um, So that's interesting. Yeah, so that would be a big part of, yeah, what they do would be to kind of, yeah, coach um, people who would be on the stand, witnesses, experts. Cool. I feel like. I never saw anything that explicitly stated that, but it makes sense that that is something that they would be doing. Um, And then lastly, I have, like, semantics. So this deciphering meaning from words, phrases, sentences, or text. So, like, you can understand the genuineness of someone in the text that's being analyzed. Um, I don't really expand on that too much. Um, But now they have a little bit of knowledge about forensic linguistics. I'm going to tell you about how it was used in Ted Kaczynski's case. Nicole covered most of it. So I'm just going to kind of repeat it and add just a little bit more examples. Um, So, yeah, he sent a manifesto to multiple newspapers and TV stations. They published it. Um... In my research, I saw that it was the sister-in-law who read it and then gave it to the brother to read. That she read it, noticed similarities, even though she's never met Ted. They've just talked in letters or whatever. And then she's like, oh, this kind of sounds like your brother. And then gave it to David to read. And I know that was how the Netflix documentary did it as well. Um, Yeah. So I had, like, I'd seen the sister-in-law come up. Um but all of the research was that it was David that took it to the FBI. So I guess they didn't yeah. really delve into the beforehand. It's just, yeah, he saw that there were similarities. Um, but yeah, that would make sense if his sister-in-law uh, noticed it first. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, she noticed it. He did take it to the FBI. Um, so yeah, he noticed like unique phrases, idioms, and familiar ideas as to what his brother had previously talked about. And the term that stood out to him the most was cool-headed logicians. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that was the one. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. I'm not totally sure if that's how you pronounce it. But I bet you the way I pronounce it will indicate my education level and where I'm from. So that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that was a term that kind of stood out to him. And so then he's kind of like, yeah, my brother might be the Unabomber. I'm going to go to the FBI. And then FBI profiler James Fitzgerald compared the manifesto to over like 86 letters and papers written by Ted. Um, So David and his mother gave the FBI letters um, and essays and anything that Ted had written that spanned over 30 years. And his mom was able to provide an original copy of an essay that had samples of Ted's handwriting and scribbles of ideas written in the margins. Um, So they were able to get like handwriting samples from that as well, which is kind of cool. And so uh, the source that I found had 160 similarities that they found in his essay. I'm not going to cover all of them. Most of them (laughs) are very redundant. (laughs) Um, I don't know how many I cover, but it's nowhere near 160. Uh, So the first similarity that I want to talk about is that in his essay that he wrote in 1971, I don't know the title of it, um, he wrote, quote, I simply find the sphere of freedom that he favors too narrow for me to accept, end quote. 
And then in the manuscript, he writes, quote, we are going to argue that industrial technological society cannot be reformed in such a way as to prevent it from progressively narrow the sphere of human freedom, end quote, as well as many other references to narrowing our sphere of human freedom that Nicole had mentioned as well. So again, super neat. And then in that same essay, he wrote, quote, think of all the misery suffered as a result of Victorian repressions, sexual perversions, frigidity, frigidity, unwanted pregnancies, and venereal disease, end quote. And then in the manuscript, he wrote, quote, during the Victorian period, many over-socialized people suffered from serious psychological problems as a result of repressing or trying to express their sexual feelings, end quote. Um, I wish that I had read kind of before and after that quote to kind of understand what point he was trying to make, because I don't know if he's for sexual freedom or kind of like against it. Because it seems weird to me. though. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I don't know if that's something like, yes, we should be, we shouldn't be ashamed of being sexual or whatever. Or if he's like, no, keep it, keep it away from society. I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know. My question, though, is how does sexual feelings have to do with technology? Do you know, like, yeah, yeah, like, like, I I have no, (laughs) I don't know where it would come up. Yeah. So I really want to, like, read in context this quote and kind of, like, figure that out. But my source did not have it in context. Um, In a rough draft of an essay, he wrote... Quote, modern technology has led to the concentration of economic and political power by big business and big government, end quote. And then in the Unabom manuscript, he writes, quote, the conservatives are exploiting his resentment of big government to promote the power of big business, end quote. So again, two similar ideas in two separate papers. I'm just going to say for the listeners who can't read on our scripts, big business and big government are capitalized as if they're like people almost. Yeah, like big pharma. And yeah. What's the other one? I don't know. I've oh, never. Okay. <laughs> you've, never, you've never heard of the term like big pharma? Not really. I don't think. Maybe I once. Google it. I definitely have. I feel like there's just so many conspiracies around it right now. Very much so. Yeah. It's kind of a hot topic. Um, And then another example or similarity was, like Nicole said, he spelled different words differently. Um, And so like analyze spelled A-N-A-L-Y-S-E instead of L-Y-Z-E. Willfully spelled with one L instead of two. So W-I-L-F-U-L-L-Y. License spelled L-I-C-E-N-C-E instead of L-I-C-E-N-S-E. And then installment spelled I-N-S-T-A-L-M-E-N-T. So um, I know that Kaczynski was American. So like, I wonder exactly what it was that made him use so many like British spellings of things. Like I yeah. understand, it was probably a lot of what he read, but it's just interesting that even in his schooling, he probably would have learned to write it the American way. Yeah, and so I don't know if, like, they had changed. Like, was it always the American way, or at that time would it have been? Oh, I guess if they're making comparisons, then there would have been an American (laughs) way and a British way. Um, 
But yeah, no, like, why would he do that if he was so smart and obviously had a high degree of education that he would have known how to yeah. spell those words properly in quotations? Yeah. Um, so more similarities were found when Ted talked about his living situation and letters to his mom and brother that were also found in the manifesto. So, like, he referred to the edibility of roots in many different letters. And then again, in the manifesto, he wrote, quote, when primitive man needed food, he knew how to find and prepare edible roots, end quote. So kind of vague, but like an idea that not many people would write about. I, I mean, I guess because it is his views and his ideologies, but it just kind of almost seems like he's plagiarizing himself and yeah. like <laughs> made it very clear. I mean, it is very much they've taken everything out and compared them and are showing us now. So it's yeah. not like you would notice it automatically, but it, yeah. it makes me think of like how often, even in my, like my school essays, how I'm unintentionally plagiarizing myself with my concepts and whatever. Yeah. I know. It's really interesting because I even look at like the way my brother and sister write things. We we do write things very similarly, but like there are certain things that are so different that it's kind of neat to see between. But I haven't looked at like each of my essays and compared them to each other, but it would be really interesting to kind of do. Yeah. Once you're like um, cognizantly trying to pick out those things i feel like it'd be really neat to actually find them and be like oh yeah yeah crap there are there it'd be yeah it'd be kind of fun to write two essays on the same thing at like two different times and mm-hmm. then kind of see like how similar your ideas were yeah um and the way you phrase them so he also referenced many authors and books in his manifesto that he had previously quoted and referenced in other texts Um, so the Kaczynski family had a subscription to a magazine that's articles were referenced regularly within the manifesto and in an admission essay that was written by Ted to get into Harvard. Oh, um, yeah. So that was kind of a big piece of evidence. And then an individual who read the manifesto who was outside of the FBI suggested that its ideas were very similar to that of the book called The Technological Society written by Jacques Ellul. So, oh. like Nicole said, he's like a French politician who's very anti-technology, um, very much shared similar ideas to Ted Kaczynski and influenced him quite a bit. And so his book, The Technological Society, was considered Ted's, like, Bible, in quotation mark. That's how his brother described it. And so in previous letters and essays, Ted had discussed the book and its philosophy quite often. Um And I think there were three or four other books that were also referenced in the manifesto that have been identified by scholars and then linked back to Ted Kaczynski. They were ones that he had read quite often and had talked about before. Um, And then we have the most famous example that everyone will know, which is the quote, well, you can't eat your cake and have it too, end quote. So this was found in the manifesto. Uh, Ted Kaczynski uses the same line in a letter to his mom in the quote, uh, the increase in complexity of our social organization that actually makes necessary the erosion of privacy and freedom. We will be sacrificing some of the materialistic benefits of technology, but there just isn't any other way. We can't eat our cake and have it too, end quote. Um, And so like the proper phrase is you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, But he had 
Oh, I think, so he switched him up. Yeah, he switched it up. So it was very unique to him to say yeah. it that way. And when I Googled the phrase, something popped up that said that that was the way they said it in like early Eng- English language. So if he was reading books or something from an early time period, yeah, this would have been something that he would have come across. Um, at least that was my understanding from the little blurb. Yeah. So like, it's just, he's using it the same way. He yeah. just has it backwards and it's very, a unique identifier for him. Um, and they've also compared like typewritten essays from other members in the Kaczynski family because a lot of their evidence, um, like the magazine and these books, every member would have had access to, but they, they didn't match the manifesto or any of the other Unabomber essays. So they were able to kind of exclude those guys and the rest of the family. Um, and they weren't able to perform any handwriting analysis because they didn't really have enough to work with. But I believe that the investigators were able to match DNA from the stamps used to Ted Kaczynski. Oh. Um, yeah, I think I had, and I, this might be from a different case altogether, but I think it might have been Kaczynski's case where, like, he thought of everything, but he licked the stamps to put it on the letter. Yeah. Which, we didn't have DNA technology until 1985. Yeah, so, so why would he have thought of that at the time? Exactly, yeah. So that's kind of interesting that they were able to do that, because I know that some scholars and investigators weren't sure that it was Ted Kaczynski. They thought that it may have been other people or someone else. They didn't feel like there was enough like conclusive evidence or whatever. Um, but I feel like if they were able to match DNA, then it's pretty certainly Ted Kaczynski. Um, okay, so I just quickly looked it up because I honestly, it didn't come up in any of the research that I um, went through. But when he was arrested, Kaczynski said, quote, I imagine one of the first things they did was collect hair and blood samples, end quote. So um, the DNA had a supply, like a collection of postage stamps in their freezer. Um, So they compared it to those. Okay. uh, To the stuff that uh, the Unabomber had sent. Interesting. And, like, he's still super smart. He crossed, or he made sure to, like, check and make sure that everything else wasn't linked back to him. And, like, they didn't have DNA till 1985. So I feel like that's not something we can hold against him for being dumb. Yeah. He can't really see <laughs> into the future. <laughs> like, what yeah. if? Think of all of the scenarios. <laughs> no matter how smart you are. Um, but, yeah, that's all I have on Ted Kaczynski and Forensic Linguistics. I hope you guys learned something and found it kind of interesting. And if anyone, listeners, or you guys have any questions, please reach out and ask them. I would love to do more research and kind of answer them for you. But yeah, I, I find it so cool. Like like you kind of said at the beginning, I always thought forensic linguistics was analyzing writing, finding components, and then matching it. Like I didn't realize yeah. there was like so much more that they do in a um, criminal setting and like a law setting. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah very I felt the same. Like, I really thought that forensic linguistics was basically like an umbrella term for document examination, which is what we talked about last yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah, which is where, if you think about it, document examination is like one aspect of forensic yeah. linguistics. It's yeah. almost like a it's subcategory. Like the f- yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
it's the physical evidence part to linguistics i'd say like linguistics yeah. is the inner writings and then document analysis is the outer components yeah yeah so that was really interesting to learn about a research i wish that i had I don't know, done more. I researched for so long about this. I don't know why I feel like I didn't have enough information about it, but it was really interesting. To yeah, because this was something we had never talked about in class. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it was really interesting to learn about as well. Uh, thank you, Journey, for putting the time into researching and teaching us all about forensic linguistics. And to you, Nicole, for researching and teaching us all about the case of the Unabomber. Because um, I feel like the Unabomber is kind of a case that like a lot of people have heard his name, not so much his name, but like his, his nickname, the Unabomber. But I think it's a case that not many people knew much about, at least in recent times. So I think it was super exciting and interesting to get to talk all about him and the forensic science in this episode. So thanks guys. Of course. Um, so Next week, or next episode on What the Forensics, we are going to be covering the case of Stephen Truscott, who was uh, convicted for the murder of a girl named Lynn Harper in Canada, uh, as well as the forensic science of forensic entomology. We're pretty excited about this one because it's taking a little bit of a different uh, turn to how we usually uh cover convicted killers uh so definitely stay tuned to hear the twists in that story next episode um i do have a joke for you guys however Ooh. it's not related to linguistics because turns out when you look up forensic linguistic jokes um it brings up a lot of academic articles about the linguistics of jokes so <laughs> <laughs> well okay yeah so, yeah so um what do you call someone who sees a crime occurring at the apple store oh a g does it have to do with the genius the genius people who work there no but you're kind of on the right track um i i give up yeah, I don't know. It would make them an eyewitness. Oh! <laughs> I, I figured it had something to do with the eye, but I had no idea where to even put oh, it. That's so smart. What the heck? That's hilarious. That's a good one. That's a good that's one. That's fantastic. <laughs> thank I'm, you for that. Absolutely. Yes, I was. <laughs> I know I needed to make up for my lack of jokes the last little bit, so I was trying to find trying to find a good one. That was That's good. fantastic. <laughs> um, so, Nicole, would you care to tell our listeners where they'd be able to find us on social media and get in contact with us? I would love to. Uh, you guys can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Um, we are most active on Instagram and Facebook, I'd say. We have a Twitter at WT Forensics PC. I don't think we ever used twitter i at least don't think i've touched our twitter <laughs> for like a year so you may not get a response on twitter um but there's also our website whatthefrensics.ca you can find our source images we were talking about any sources we used that you may want to check out further uh, a little bit about us in our past episodes and you can also email us at whattheforensics at gmail.com 
Perfect. Well, thank you guys so much, uh, you, Journey Nicole, for teaching us everything and to our audience for tuning in and spending this hour with us. Uh, This has been another episode of What the Forensics. We really hope you guys enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Bye! Bye. (laughs) Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm